Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Wildwood Church. If for any reason we don't uh, know each other, my name is Russell. I'm the Director of Worship and Arts here at Wildwood, and uh, it's great to see you here. I'd love to get to know you and to meet you after the service if you're around. And uh, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. I hope that uh, the food coma is wearing off a little bit and that you didn't have to work too hard to roll in, I mean, walk in this morning. And uh, glad you're here. This Sunday, according to the historic church calendar, goes by the name of Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday, at least for the last hundred years in the historic church calendar. And I don't know, at least to me, it seems a little bit odd Um, just a little bit different than in years past. I feel like usually, this might not be the case, but I feel like usually the the Sunday right after Thanksgiving is the first Sunday of Advent. But this year, because the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent, if you don't know anything about what I'm talking about right now, don't worry, keep coming back over the next couple of weeks. We'll fill you in on Advent and all that good stuff. But the fourth Sunday of Advent this year actually falls on Christmas Eve. And so that backs everything forward up a little bit. So today we are looking at Christ the King through the lens that Paul used in the reading that Savannah just did from Colossians and Colossians 1. Now, if you're anything like me, and I sincerely hope that you are not, but if you are anything like me, then, and I don't mean this in like a disrespectful way, maybe if you grew up somewhere different, I just gotta be honest about my experience, my upbringing. If you're anything like me, the whole idea of like, royalty or king, queen kind of language, that sort of thing, just seems kind of like fuzzy and distant to me because you know, I didn't really grow up in it. Uh, I grew up here in the United States of America. We don't have a king. We don't have a queen. So, so any exposure experience usually came through a history class or it came through a movie or a TV show or something like that. So, so my impression of royalty or kings and queens and that sort of thing is, is kind of at an arm's distance. I don't really know all the ins and outs of it. And again, maybe if you're anything like me, you might have some of the same ideas that I think about when I think about kings and queens. Now, again, if you grew up in a different country or different area of the world, maybe you have a different idea of what all this stuff means. But for me, when I think of this kind of language, king and queen, royalty, ruling, stuff like that, this is the kind of image that comes to mind. Now, that dashing gentleman pictured right there went by the name of King George III. And if that name is ringing any kind of bell for you, he was the one, you know, Boston Tea Party, 1776, American Revolution, that whole thing. It was, it was a whole thing. Um, and it's not so much that specific guy that comes to mind for me, but more of what that image kind of evokes or that vibe, if you will, right? He kind of has that like aloof, lofty, kind of like, I'm better than you. I don't know, maybe that's not how he was. I, I never knew the guy, but I'm sure he was perfectly nice. But that kind of idea of just kind of at a distance, kind of I'm up here doing my thing, you're doing your thing, uncomfortable clothes, like that's got to be like a million degrees in there. The powdered wig, the pale complexion, you know what I mean? That whole thing. Yeah, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm saying maybe it's a result of my upbringing. Maybe it's from my education system. I don't know. But that's the kind of idea that I have of royalty when I think of king and queen in that sort of language. Or if you're more of the millennial or Gen Z variety, maybe this is what comes to mind. (laughs) Now, believe it or not, that is the same guy who was in the first picture. This is Jonathan Groff's portrayal, the Broadway production uh, in Hamilton of King George III. And it's funny, throughout the show, if you watch it, he's kind of like, 
a, a talking head. He kind of walks out on stage and just kind of stands there and he's kind of grumpy the whole time, you know, cracking jokes. He always seems like he's kind of like one step behind the action, you know what I mean? He's always kind of catching up to whatever else is going on. He's grumpy, he's kind of goofy, he's kind of silly, kind of bumbling, never really knows what's going on. Now, millennials and Gen Z, show of hands, when this picture came up, did anyone hum, you'll be back in your head? Anybody? Yes, wonderful. The rest of you are liars, because you thought it too. But maybe it's that kind of idea. And if it's not like, you know, a pale dude in uncomfortable clothes, if it's not Jonathan Groff singing, maybe in a, the idea of kingship or kingdom or queendom gets transposed in your mind to a slightly different Christian key. And maybe you've heard this phrase thrown around a couple times, that Jesus is the Lord or the King of my heart. And I want to be clear, like, I'm not here to say, like, that's not a thing. It is a thing. It is a real thing. But when we talk about Jesus being the Lord or the King of my heart, again, it's true. We kind of think about our personal relationship with him or we kind of get the warm fuzzies, that sort of thing when we talk about that. And again, it's, it's true. But I can't help but wonder if it's not the whole truth. You know what I mean? Maybe it's part of the idea, but it's not the full extent of the idea. And I think with all these in the first two, we kind of giggled, you know, they're kind of silly examples. And maybe they do communicate some truths, maybe they don't. But I don't think any of those things fully represents the, the pale person in the uncomfortable clothes or the singing kind of bumbling guy on Broadway stage or the idea of the warm fuzzies, the personal relationship with Jesus. I don't think that's the full picture. And it's not just me. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, Michael Bird, says, Nero did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed that Jesus is the Lord of my heart. So what are we talking about here when we talk about Jesus as king? After all, many scholars argue that Jesus' main message in his earthly ministry was about the kingdom of God. And it's definitely a theme we see all throughout the four gospels. More on that in a minute. But what did he mean by that? If we're not talking about pale dudes and uncomfortable clothes, we're not talking about the warm fuzzies in our hearts, what do we mean when we call Jesus king? Here's why this matters. Here's why this is a problem. If we misunderstand what this kingdom concept means, we misunderstand the main thrust of what Jesus was all about. So to answer that problem, I'd like to take a look at what scripture says about the kingdom and Christ the king and to see what that means for us today. We're gonna look at the kingdom then and the kingdom now. Kingdom then, kingdom now. Are you with me? All right, let's go. First thing we're gonna do is look at the kingdom then. And as we go through here, we're gonna kind of trace a brief, that could be exhaustive or long, a brief kind of biblical theology of the kingdom of God throughout the pages of scripture. And as we do that, one kind of like idea, core principle, keep in your mind is that Jesus the King is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We're gonna come back to this theme time and time and time again. Just keep that idea in your mind as we go. All right, first thing to draw out with any good biblical theology, we're going to start at the beginning. You don't have to turn there, but at the very beginning of your Bible, probably page one after the table of contents, copyright information, all that stuff, you have the creation story in Genesis 1. And on the sixth day of creation, God creates humankind, male and female, Adam and Eve. And he creates them with a specific vocation, a job that they are to do. 
Again, you don't have to turn there, but in your Bibles, you might see in Genesis 1 that Adam and Eve were called to, you may see the word rule or reign, or if you have a little older translation, to have dominion. And all of those ideas come from the same Hebrew word, and that word is radah. Can you say radah? Very good. All of that means to rule, to reign, to have dominion. So the kingdom of God, that's that's kingdom language. That's king, queen, ruler language. Rule, reign, have dominion. The kingdom of God was the plan from the beginning. That's the first thing that's going to be important for us to see. The kingdom of God was God's plan from the beginning. It's not just like when Jesus came on the scene, God was like, I got to do something different. This is not working out. Let's just try this. This was the plan from the beginning. Adam and Eve were created and called and given a holy vocation from God to rule and reign. But it wasn't like God just created them and said, all right, figure it out, make it work, rule, reign, do your thing. God is the preeminent ruler and king over all things, but he creates humankind in his image to rule and reign on his behalf as his royal ambassadors in the world. And now, after that, if you know literally anything else about the biblical story, you know that that didn't work out so well. Little thing that theologians call the fall. And basically what happened is Adam and Eve took their good, right, holy vocation to rule and reign, and they twisted it and they warped it and they took it in their own direction. And they wanted to define good and evil according to their own terms. Talk about that in a little bit. But what happened in that situation when they twisted their ruling and reigning vocation and ability, they took this idea of kingdom and they made it their own thing. They looked at God and they said, we want to rule our way apart from your way. And if you look around you, you know the universe has suffered the consequences ever since. Everything kind of went haywire. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification what I'm about to say, but basically you could take that pattern of God empowering his people to rule and reign, then them taking that ruling and reign ability and twisting it and warping it and pushing it in their own direction away from him. And then the consequences of separation that happened there. You can basically copy and paste that template again and again and again and again, and you get pretty much the Old Testament. Again, oversimplification, I know, but that's kind of the general idea. Until all of that snowballs up until the point of the exile. And we don't have time really to dig into the history and the implications of the exile, but basically the exile is the ultimate symbol of how far humankind had fallen in our royal vocation. It was the example par excellence of what happens when people try to rule and reign their own way apart from God's good plan and desires. And it results, instead of life and flourishing and beauty, it results in idolatry and chaos and corruption. And you could understand someone living through the exile, an Israelite in the midst of the exile saying, kingdom of God? Yeah, so much for that. And yet, out of the midst of the exile, you hear the voice of the prophet Isaiah saying, from Isaiah 52, verse 7, says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, listen to this part, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You can imagine people looking at him going, dude, are you crazy? 
Look around. This doesn't look anything like peace and prosperity and flourishing. And yet, this is what the people of Israel were waiting for. See, later Jewish people were permitted back into their lands, but it was still under the occupation of Persians, Greeks, Romans, oh my. It wasn't the same. The Jewish people were waiting on pins and needles for God to decisively return and to liberate them from their captivity and oppression, to start his kingdom rule and reign once and for all on the earth. Then enters the figure of Jesus. Now again, backtracking a little bit, like we said earlier, scholars argue that Jesus' kingdom message was the most important thing he talked about in his earthly ministry. We don't have time to come through all the instances of the kingdom of God language through the gospels, but here's a small sampling from each of the gospels. From Matthew's telling of the gospel, he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From Mark's telling of the gospel, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then in Luke's gospel, it says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's Jesus saying, this is why I'm here to broadcast this message. Then finally, from the gospel according to John, and he talks about it in a little bit different terms throughout his gospel, but it's the same meaning. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, in the context of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was announcing the good news that the kingdom of God was here. And though it didn't look anything like they planned in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus was taking his rightful place as king over all creation. He did what the people of Israel failed to do. To sum it all up, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says it best. He says, the apostles' gospel was the story of Jesus resolving the story of Israel. The apostles' gospel was the story of Jesus resolving the story of Israel. So that's what the kingdom would have meant in the time of the Old Testament all the way up through the gospels. That's kingdom then. But the good news this morning as we celebrate Christ the King Sunday is that Jesus is still ruling and reigning today. So that's the kingdom then. Now we're gonna look at the kingdom now. And we're gonna look at it through three different kind of lenses and then we're gonna land on one kind of practical implication of it all. So the way we're gonna look at the kingdom now, three lenses, we're gonna look at it with this model. If Jesus is king, then fill in the blank. So for starters, the first one, if Jesus is king, then the spiritual forces of darkness are not. If Jesus is king, Spiritual forces of darkness or not. You can look from Colossians 1 verse uh, 16. You can see the underlined portions that are there. And, and let me just address this real quick. I understand that maybe some of you in the room are having this reaction of um, this language of spiritual forces of darkness. And you may be saying, Russell, are we seriously about to talk about demons and devils and things that go bump in the night and that sort of thing? Right, like aren't we kind of past that? Don't we kind of know that's not really the way the world works? 
I get that. Like, I, I get that impulse. This is not our normal worldview. I understand that. I don't want to just be dismissive of that or just dismiss it out of hand. The problem is this is absolutely the way the writers of scripture saw the world. This was the worldview of Jesus and Paul. And I would argue it's the worldview of Christians all throughout church history. Don't just take my word for it. The early church father, St. Augustine, who lived around the fourth and fifth century said in his commentary on this passage in Colossians, from this power of evil angels, nothing delivers man but the grace of God. More recently, a theologian named George Eldon Ladd said, this present evil age and the totality of human existence are under bondage to these evil powers. And the kingdom of God can be realized only by their defeat. Great author C.S. Lewis said that our world is enemy-occupied territory. And that when we follow Christ, we are taking part in a great campaign of sabotage. Friends, that's not a metaphor. That is what is actually happening. This world is enemy-occupied territory. And when we follow Jesus, when we put our faith, our trust, our pledge, our allegiance to him, when we follow him and turn from the idols and things of this world and the spiritual forces of darkness, we are engaging in an act and a campaign, excuse me, of sabotage. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that is not easy. If you've been following Jesus, you probably have some sort of idea that this rings true. And you, maybe yourself or those around you, have experienced the burn and the pain and the attacks of those spiritual forces of darkness. And you have seen them wreak havoc and destruction all throughout our world. We feel their power. We feel their sting. But friends, the good news this morning is that they don't get the last word. The author Fleming Rutledge says this best. She says, in the divine invasion of this world, the powers that have been allowed to rule in the present evil age are disarmed by the powers of the world to come. Christ the Lord is victor even in the midst of the suffering of his followers. Christ the Lord is victor, even in the midst of the suffering of his followers. Make no mistake here. The powers of darkness can feel overwhelming sometimes. But as Master Yoda pointed out to Luke, the dark side is not stronger. And if you have no idea what I just said, first off, we are praying for you. We just are. But let me put it this way. Jesus' resurrection was the proof that the spiritual forces of darkness, the powers of evil, could throw their absolute worst at him by putting him to death in the crucifixion. But he overcame them in his resurrection. And friends, we will overcome them on the last day in our resurrection. We feel their sting. We feel their pain. They are real. They are active in this world. But friends, they are on borrowed time. And I don't have like some like, practical tip. I get, now that you know that demons are real, here's three ways you can be better at work. Like I don't have that for you. But I think the point of this is just to say that this worldview is not our normal worldview, but it is true. It is real. If Jesus is king, the spiritual forces of darkness are not. Second, 
If Jesus is king, then the earthly powers are not. Again, from verse 16, note the different things that are underlined in this part of the passage. What I mean by this is, look, Jesus and Paul both lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And I think we can all agree that the Roman Empire gave civilization ever since, gave humanity some truly good gifts of architecture or of art or of philosophy or of writing or of beauty, all kinds of good gifts from them. But I don't think it's controversial to say that the Roman Empire was also manifestly brutal, especially as they, if they saw you as an enemy of the empire. In the earliest church, that's exactly how they saw them. Jesus and Paul both lived through the midst of the Roman Empire. For the next two to 300 years, Christians were executed en masse. Now, scholars debate just how widespread this massacre was, but no one debates that it happened. Christians then and all throughout history have lived under the threat of earthly powers. And friends, I would submit to you that that is still the case in many parts of the world today. Christians living under earthly powers who threaten them with force and violence and death and trample the gospel underfoot. But the good news of Jesus' kingship, of Jesus' lordship, the good news that Christ is king means that these earthly powers will be held to account for the ways they rule. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of those who can kill the body because the earthly kingdoms will ultimately answer to King Jesus. Now, having said that, I feel it's important to give a little disclaimer here, okay? Because it may sound like I'm saying something that I'm not trying to say. So for example, uh, when this service is over, if you start booking it, down Meridian Road going 75 and get pulled over, Christian, you do not have the right to say to the officer, I appreciate what you're doing. Really, I do. But listen, Jesus is king. So I don't have to listen to you. Let me just be as clear about this as anybody's ever been about anything. That is not an option that is on the table for you. That doesn't mean we get to say Jesus is king so I don't have to listen to you. We as Christians obey faithfully, prayerfully, and charitably, knowing that Jesus is the reality to which all earthly rulers are the proxy. If Jesus is king, the spiritual forces of darkness are not. If Jesus is king, the earthly powers are not. Last thing to see, if Jesus is king, then you are not. And I know that this might be the hardest one for many of us to square with. And I realized that sounded a little more pointed than I meant. Like, like none of you came to mind. I wasn't like, well, Darwin's gonna have a hard time with this one. Uh, maybe he does, I don't know. I don't think he do. That's not my point. It's just to say that I know that there are a lot of us who struggle with this, myself included, wholeheartedly. And our cultural moment is one that tells us to do what we want. You may have heard this before. Follow your heart. You do you, live your truth, have it your way. I did it my way. We're surrounded by advertisements of all kinds that tell us to live it up and get what we can in terms of money or things or status or romantic partners 
All we have to do is to keep doing what we want to do. Society is bent towards repressing your desires and you'll never be truly happy until you bust out and make your own way and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Old, young, rich, poor, men, women, we're all told the problem, uh, excuse me, we're all told that we're kings and queens and the only problem is we're not living like it. But I would submit to you in light of what we've seen of the biblical witness That is a distortion of the truth. It's a half-truth. The real only problem is we're not very good at ruling and reigning on our own. Have you looked around lately? Is anyone thriving off of being their own king and queen in life? Has anyone ever thrived that way? I don't know if you know this, but living for pleasure has always left everyone high and dry. It has never come through on its word. It always overpromises and always underdelivers. And you know, Paul talks about a similar thing in his letter to the Philippians. He writes about people whose God is their belly and says their end is destruction. See, when you think that you're in control, that you're going to stop at nothing to accomplish your own goals and dreams, and that all that matters is getting what you want when you want it. Listen, you are not king. You are not queen. In that situation, your desires are. And you are actually enslaved to those desires. That's why so many lives around us lead to chaos and destruction. We see it every day. They're compulsively driven by their desires and powerless to overcome them. It feels great for a moment, but just wreaks havoc in the long run. And just to be clear, this isn't a new problem. Again, going back to what we saw in the beginning, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was redefining good and evil for themselves setting themselves up as king and queen in their own way to rule apart from God's good design. And listen, again, the problem is we're just not very good at that. Despite our best and worst intentions, we end up making a mess. I love what the philosopher James K. Smith says about this. He says, do we really think we are the answer to our problems? We who've generated all of them? Makes a pretty good point. When we set ourselves up on the throne, what we don't realize is that we are partnering with these spiritual forces of darkness on personal and systemic levels to bring the kingdom of darkness forward. Now look again with me to what Paul says in Colossians 1, in in, uh, verse 21. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What's the good news? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus came to free us by the power of his spirit from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light. Our text this morning from Colossians tells us in verse 22 that those of us who were alienated have now been reconciled, but it starts when we give up the desire to rule and reign by our own means and our own strength. In a sense, we have to abdicate our own throne. 
C.S. Lewis again put it perfectly in Mere Christianity. This fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Feel the sting of that. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That's the only way out of our hole. Jesus came to free us from ourselves. To use Paul's language again from verse 13, to deliver us from the domain of darkness, transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that, my friend, is good news. He's king, to put it another way, so you don't have to be. So, with all of that in mind, what do we do now? Or in other words, how does the kingdom of Jesus affect us today? And I only have one kind of practical step or practical implication for you. And that is simply to submit to Christ as king. Or to put it a little more pointedly, to pledge our allegiance to Christ and his name above any and all other names. Look with me in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You've heard us say it a thousand times around here, that we bow the knee and submit our lives to Christ the King. Let me be clear, it's not a partial submission. For many of us, it's not even a convenient submission, but a whole life submission to Jesus as King. You know, as we're talking about this, I just want to offer one quick clarification. And I really, hear my heart, I don't mean what I'm about to say as snark or arrogance or we've got it right, they've got it wrong. None of that. That is not my goal. I just want to make something abundantly clear. That's to say, when I was growing up in different, you know, sermons or altar calls or that sort of thing, I heard this language a lot growing up about, I needed to make Jesus the king of my life. And I want to be charitable here. I, get what, I think I get what they're trying to say. It's a lot of what we're talking about here. Submit to him, bow the knee, pledge our allegiance, forfeit our lives, turn them over to his rule and reign. Yes, amen, all good, all important. But friends, I would just humbly submit to you that words matter. And especially when we're talking about this, clarity is critical. So just to be clear, we do not make Jesus king of anything. He is king. We submit to him as king of everything. We do not make Jesus king of anything. We submit to him as king everything. And when we submit to the king, we receive life in the kingdom through the spirit. We're accepted by God, not because of how impressive we are or how influential we are or how impressive our own personal kingdoms that we built and established are. We're adopted, loved, accepted purely because of the goodness of the king. We're grafted in. Those without a family are welcomed into the family of God. 
Those without hope are given hope, peace, joy, and love. We'll talk about those in the coming weeks. But when we surrender to King Jesus, we find more than we could ever have bargained for. When we lay down our lives, we find them. Jesus is king. The only question on the table this morning is how will we respond? Will we continue in our rebellion or lay down our arms? We're going to come to the table together in just a few minutes to feast on and feast with King Jesus.